Hey guys, welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ, and today I'm speaking with Douglas Rushkoff. Douglas is the author of Present Shock, When Everything Happens Now, and Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, How Growth Became the Enemy of Prosperity, as well as a dozen other best-selling books on media, technology, and culture, including Program or Be Programmed, Media Virus, and Life Inc., He's a professor of media theory and digital economics and made the television documentaries Generation Like, Merchants of Cool, The Persuaders and Digital, and digital Nation. And he lectures about media, society and economics all around the world. So huge, huge honor. Douglas, thank you so much for being here. Super exciting. Bro, thanks for having me on Spirit Pig. <laughs> now, I, often on these sort of interviews, I've got like... You know, I, I do some prep, and I've got a pretty sort of clear idea, of sort of the flow. Often it will take, but here but there's. This one I mean, you did no prep whatsoever. No, no, no. I've still done my prep. I've done, <laughs> I've done my prep, but like, there's quite an eclectic different things, and so I mean, I'm not really sure where exactly this is going to go. But there's a couple of like questions and stories and stuff which I'm going to so go along with, and so we'll see where we we'll see where we end up. But one cool. one thing I liked, um, I once heard you talking a bit about like the history, where you started, a bit of your childhood, and you tell this great story about sort of going to Sunday school and your conversation with a new rabbi. Can you maybe just, like, can you maybe just share that? Yeah, I don't know. For me, that was, that might have been formative. Yeah, I, uh, I was, I was a little kid. My brother went to uh, Sunday school, and I wasn't old enough, but I wanted to do everything that he did. So I started, uh, Sunday school when I was in kindergarten, they stuck me in the first grade class. And I was, you know, this little precocious little, I don't know what, iconoclast. And um, they had, we lost our rabbi for some reason. Maybe he got old or whatever. And uh, they had hired this new rabbi, this kind of young idealistic guy out of Canada. And he came around to all the Sunday school classes, each grade, and he was like, you ask me any question. It was sort of like a Reddit thing, you know? Ask me anything. Ask me anything. So I went right to the heart. I said, what is God? And he got into this whole thing about, you know, because he didn't want to talk about God being a character. So he was talking about the universe and that God is uh, is sort of what – it's how you know that there's sort of good in the – that the universe is biased to good and not bad. You know, it's sort of that – it's that inner sense that you have, that connection to – you know, sort of what is moral, what is ethical. And I was like, what, so you mean like God is your conscience? And he said, yes, God is your conscience. God is your conscience. And he started going to all the different classes and saying, God is your conscience. God is your conscience. Um, and then a few weeks later, they fired him because people were upset. This guy's going around with this very, uh, uh, you know, abstract. They want to don't tell your kids God is your conscience. You tell them, especially back in the '60s, whatever. You know, you don't tell them. You tell them, you know, God is this guy up in the sky, right? Who looks and watches and this character. And uh, they got rid of him. And I always felt um, responsible for getting this poor rabbi fired. You know, by if anything. And I was also asking him, what is God? As you know kind of an asshole kid trying to, you know, stump the teacher. I think it was less, you know, true theological yearning than, all right, then, if you're going to ask you anything, you know, what's God? And then it led to his downfall 
Um, well, I mean, you decided what that almost from that point you would help to see, help people to see. I think you said like the innate order of things. Like you know, there's a natural ethic which is beyond social construction. Was that sort of like led on to a lot of your other work? Yeah, I mean, I guess it was. I didn't quite know how to say it yet. They didn't have. I didn't know about you know computer programming or open source or any of the great models we have now for you know bottom up collaborative world design but at the time it seemed to me that yeah that people's uh that this sort of agreed upon model for how things are that nobody really believes but everybody accepts out of some weird convenience or because they're paid to or because the power people say to that those uh, that those constructions are actually standing in the way of whatever the real thing is. So you, know, you could look at almost anything. So uh, now I look at, you know, well, money. So money is this agreed upon thing that's actually an obstacle to distributed wealth. You know, <laughs> God, as we conceive it, is this obstacle to, uh, you know, shared, uh, shared spiritual uh grounding and connection you know so each of the things each of the institutions that we that we erect tend to be uh these these right socially constructed uh barriers to the thing that they purport to to express yeah and even like from um what's it called even sort of the the stories which we see like in our day to day. I mean, I, I've, I've been, this has come up a f- couple of times in sort of different ways, but the Aristotle narrative, I mean, I've been, it's been explained what's the, the hero's journey, the Aristotle narrative. Can you explain this is the Aristotle narrative has been used what for thousands of years and it's still being used today by brands and advertising, isn't it? Like what is it for anyone who doesn't know exactly what that is? Well, it's weird, you know, oddly enough, like Torah and Bible kind of predate the Aristotelian narrative and they're different. You know, it's it's weird. You don't generally see like a Bible character. Ah, that guy was hoisted on his own petard. You know, or, ah, that was Moses's tragic flaw, and therefore he was brought down. You know, you don't see that. You know, crisis climax relief that you get. You know, so that's that, what it that, is. Just for anyone who doesn't know the, the Aristotle narrative, what the hero's journey is. What you've you start the character, you get to what know them, and then they have this moment of. Um, challenge or something where they get up to a point, climax, what's going to happen, they solve it or whatever happens, and then it's the release afterwards. That, that's what it is, right. that, that arch. Exactly. You just create a character the audience likes. That character has a series of challenges that put him into more and more danger until he or she gets into the worst possible situation where it looks like there's no way out, and then the character finds a solution. You know, whether it's, you know, uh, 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 you know, Oedipus realizes is he killed his own father. Arnold Schwarzenegger finds a gun. The kid in the acne commercial, you know, finds the the tube of clearasil to kill the pimples. You know, whatever it is, and then ah, relief. So crisis, climax, relief. This sort of male orgasm curve of of narrative, and we used it for everything from Christian salvation to capitalism to fascism, you know, you keep your eyes on the prize, you, you're going to, the ends justify the means, and you march together till you get to that place, and then, yay, the great thing happens. And uh, that was, that really worked well in sort of literary culture and book culture, where <clears throat> your, your audience was captive, and where your medium was really linear. You could move from beginning to middle to end, 
you know, when your audience isn't captive, they're not as willing to go up into danger with your character. They're not as willing to, to, oh, don't go in that room. Oh, don't do that thing. Oh, just switch the channel. Just go, you know, or you're, 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 uh, uh, you know, fast forward and back and in a very, in a very disjointed uh, media space, you know, particularly when, when the narrative arc is being used by an advertiser or a politician or someone you don't trust, you really don't want to stay for it. You know, I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to sit through this anxiety in order to find out what pill I'm supposed to take, you know, um, and you go. So as we got used to escaping narrative, you know, our storytellers, even the ones who didn't mean us harm, had to find sort of these other ways of conveying meaning. So, and that that's where in the in the really the eighties and early nineties, you start to see, you know, television shows like The Simpsons, which help you make sense based much more on pattern recognition than on getting to the end of the story, right? So you're not worried about will Homer get out of the nuclear power plant before it blows up. You're instead you're you're watching it really in more of a scene to scene to scene way. Oh, this scene satirizing MTV, and that scene satirizing this commercial, and that scene satirizing Alfred Hitchcock, so that your your the endorphin release, you know, the catharsis, I guess is what you'd call it, that you would normally get only at the very end. Now you're getting as this sort of series of pattern recognitions along the way, which is you know a way more uh, 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 positive form of narrative in some ways. It's not crisis climax completion. It's not beginning, middle, end, and death. You know, it's not. Uh, a kind these are not kinds of stories like wars where you have to go out find the enemy struggle with them and kill them in order for the story to end this is much more a kind of sustainable open-ended narrative much more like a fantasy role-playing game than a football game that you just win and that is so much more helpful in a world where we're looking for sustainable solutions to problems not just victories against you know the the raiding hordes of enemies yeah and it's, it's much more yeah much more consistent with real life and the actual the lives right. we, we live and um because you were saying like and it's that's like why, i mean and that's why you know and it turned out you know i thought religion would be the biggest hardest craziest one of those to unearth you know that narrative and it turns out it's not it turns out it's business and economics that's the one i mean well duh of course what are the rich going to defend more desperately than anything else their vision of god or their money, right? It's going to be <laughs> their money. So, but it's the same. It's the same problem, you know. So now people start companies in order to sell them, right? You start the company, and the IPO, you know, where you get on the stock market, or the acquisition where Google or Facebook buys you, is seen as the end of the story, the goal, the climax, the thing that we're moving towards. And that's not why you start a company. You should start a company because you like doing this thing, because you have something of value to other people. And you're not going to develop your company the same way. If you're developing it to sell it, you're going to do very different things and make very different choices than if you're developing it as an ongoing, almost family enterprise, something that you're going to do for the rest of your life. You know, Uber is not being designed by people who want to stay with that company, right? Uber is being designed by people who want to do the evil they have to do now in order to get an absolute platform monopoly and then sell the fucker to, uh, to Wall Street and get out of there with a few billion dollars. That's, that's the object of the game here. If they were actually thinking, how can we create 
ride service and sharing in a way that will help promote community activity and develop local economies. And, you know, it would be a very different company, wouldn't it? Talking about the Uber thing, that's interesting because I totally hear your point is there. But then would you say it then because it's the rise of the peer-to-peer, the sharing economy, I mean, is that like, would you not say that's more of a step in the right direction at least because it's more collaborative or do you think actually... I don't know, as in I'm just thinking out loud when you're saying that. Because at least it's, you know, the whole, I know, I mean, peer-to-peer sharing economy, like it's only like the, the collective, rather than it being this one monopoly in charge of effing. Well, I guess it is, though, at the same time. I don't it know. is, though. It's yeah, a monopoly, it is, it is, and though, it extracts, it? It, it, it leverages the new peer-to-peer uh, uh, ethos but it does that in order to extract value from those exchanges. So Uber could be a tiny little app that facilitates all this activity without taking out a lion's share of the profit. It could actually exist. It could exist along with other little apps that do the same thing. It wouldn't have to be the only one, right? It wouldn't have to uh, use its billions of dollars of venture capital in order to undercut all the enemies in order to dominate a market, right? The object of the game for Uber should not be to put local cabs out of business. It should be to compete effectively with them. And that doesn't mean uh, it's not a real part of any kind of uh, economic ecosystem. It's uh, it's an invader. And that's... So it's that, it's that prize. Different. It's the victory. It's, 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 it's the goal at the end as opposed to, yeah. And, what, what right, and the- it has a scorched earth. It's a scorched earth... Uh, uh, approach. It's the way that, you know, there was a company called Clear Channel that destroyed the FM radio dial in America. And it did it, you know, they bought all the stations and they replaced all the DJs with computers and did everything from one place. There was no more local radio. And then they realized that we can't make money on this. And they tried to sell it all back, but the, the, it was gone. The ecosystem was gone. You can't just rebuild a culture that took, you know, 50 years to, to create. You can't just, you know, recreate it. What is the Greeks? The Greeks had two different words, didn't they, for uh, for timing? They had Kronos, like time on the clock, and Kairos. Uh-huh. I think. What? What? I, I hadn't. I didn't. I've never heard of this differentiation before. What, what was that? Yeah. Well, that's why I was. I was talking a lot about that when I wrote Present Shock, which really looks at that. That there's, you know, there. They had two understandings of time, where Kronos is just the time that we know, like time on the clock. What time did you crash the car? You know, I crashed the car at four seventeen. And this other word for time, which is kairos, which is more like readiness or human time. And that would be, you know, what time do you tell dad that you crashed the car? 421? No, you tell dad that you crashed the car, you know, after he's had his drink and before he's opened the bills. So that's that's kairos. That's sort of human time. It's a time that, that, that that's much more based on, on, on kind of that readiness, that Hamlet idea of the readiness is all. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a softer, squishier understanding of of time and what we've done i mean it, through digital technology and largely through the economy uh, our our economic understanding of time we understand chronos you know oh i've got this much time i'm going to sell you these 3 hours for these 3 dollars you know we understand time in that segmented way but we've lost touch with the actual human time so if you spend time with someone I mean, maybe uh, Skype is sort of halfway between, but, you know, the time you spend uh, uh, on Facebook or doing email and all is almost all 
Chronos type time. It's very digital. It's very surrendered to something. And and you don't get to experience, you know, Kairos, which is much more like the sort of eye-to-eye contact, the rhythms of nature, the, the, the forming rapport and breathing with a person and seeing his pupils open. You know, that's where all this kind of Kairos can happen. And I just find that with so many of these technologies, we, we justify them as time-saving, but they're actually time-killing because they, they – they, they amplify Kronos. Oh, you did this in seven seconds instead of seven minutes, but they kill the Kairos of the seven minutes that you got to spend with someone else. You know, so the example I always use for it is um, the these Real Housewives shows in the States where these women can't communicate at all. And I realized the reason why these old – it's about these basically these old wealthy women of various cities like Beverly Hills and they – do these reality shows about them and the shows amount to these women fighting and having misunderstandings and it's because these women have put so much Botox into their faces, they've done so much plastic surgery that they can't make facial expressions that match the things that they're saying so that everyone thinks they're lying. You know, So one woman says, oh, my daughter's going in for cancer testing and the other one says, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And the first one thinks that she's lying because she's smiling while she's saying it. But she has to smile because her face is frozen. So these women, in trying to lock down their faces at sort of age 29 Kairos or age 29 Kronos, right, that, that, that moment, they've made themselves unavailable to the Kairos, to the real moment that they're actually in. right? So they've, 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 they're worshipping Kronos and forgetting about about Kairos. And that's really the problem with the way we're implementing our technologies is in order to to amplify uh, the metrics of time and time saving, but we're losing the human time of our lives. We actually have less time than we used to. Mm. Well, this is this is this is one of the um, sort of the big like reasons one of the, you know, there's, there's a few but one of the big reasons why I actually want to talk to you because one in in these interviews, I mean I I've lost track of how many um, how many times, you know, being, um, you know, being present, being in the moment, you know, being the now, like, you know, it's just come up, you know, and, you know, talking to different people, different backgrounds, professions, careers, countries, this is a theme that's come up again and again and again, but it was some, talking about, um, but there's such, there's this difference, like you were talking about, being, the difference of being of the moment is not the same as being in the moment, um, and what you're saying there, like, um, being on, uh, like, you know, our phone buzzes and suddenly we've got, like, a tweet, a text, you know, that, that is in the moment, in the moment, but that's not this sort of Zen Taoist, <laughs> like, you know, what we're saying of being in the here and now. It's, there's a big difference, isn't there? Because you're, you're focused, well, you are in the moment, you're not living in the past, the present, you're very much interested in your tweet, but that's not the sort of end result, is it? Your tweet's not in the true present, right? Your tweet just happened somewhere. It's in someone... It was in someone else's present, right? So the irony is people think they're catching up, you know, with these streams, these, these you know, streams of news updates or tweets or SMS messages. But those messages are trying to keep up with you. You're in the present and they're all back there. So are you trying to keep up with the past is, is bizarre. But there's all these weird time shiftings that happen online. You know, you go on Facebook and you've got – friends from second grade that you've been trying to get away from for the last 30 years, then they pop up wanting to be in your present with equal say as everybody else. And that's not fair. The past is supposed to recede. I've spent so long getting away from that past. You're you're allowed to be in this present. And then Mark Zuckerberg is advertising 
your future to you that you don't even know you're going to live yet, right? He's using your 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 the data trail you've left behind to do big data analysis and find out if you're going to go on a diet, if you're going to decide you're gay, if you're going to get married, if you're going to get erectile dysfunction. He knows what's coming. So you start to get in your ads, you're getting advertisements from a future you haven't yet even gotten to. You know, if you're even going to go there, there's a 10, 20% chance that you would have gone somewhere else. But now they're really trying to force you to be true to your profile. So in both senses, these whether it's the messages coming from your past or the messages coming from your future, um, the the technology is trying to make you more predictable, you more consistent with your profile, with your segment, you know, and that's uh, that's life killing, right? So you well step off into the real world. You're not missing anything. When you're missing something is when you're engaging with these, you know, algorithmically preordained messaging systems. Well, I've been saying, sort of like, you know, if if I'm sitting at home and thinking, you know, whatever, like technology is bad or complaining about how people's attention spans are getting less and less, real life human interaction is on the decrease, what what kind of practical things, what kind of things do you think we can do? Like, how can we use technology in a positive way? Well, I mean, I would use, I would use technology to promote your real world experiences rather than to substitute for them. So it's a matter of use your email to find a time to meet somebody, you know, and then be with them, you know, and uh, understand that, yeah, this is great for you in Sri Lanka to talk to me in New York. That's what you use this for. If you were here, if you lived in my town, this would be really dumb, right? <laughs> These The technologies are great uh, for your – I still see them as, you know, productivity tools. You know, so as a creative person, it was great to make music, to write books, to draw pictures, to disseminate your creative activity. But I don't um, – I don't see them as substitutes for the social reality. You know, there's a social element. You know, which is great. The social element really works best when you use them in a time-shifted way. You know, I haven't seen anything better yet than what we used to call Usenet. It was these discussions or or the BBS, a bulletin board. You know, a good discussion between people um, can happen in this space. It used to be a place where people were smarter or sounded smarter than they did in real life because they took so much time to craft each paragraph. And now, you know, it's the sort of Donald Trump inane, you know, Twitter, cell phone stuff. It's just like, don't. Your best... The stuff we think about most, we consider the most, is the stuff we say to some other person in real life. And the stuff we don't even consider before we send it out to 20,000 people is the crap that we type into this angry and go, bam. So which part of you are you amplifying and which part of you are you are you repressing? Another thing I found quite um, yeah fascinating was because a lot of the focus is, you know, obviously your expertise, you know, on media, digital technology. But um, I heard you discuss about um, the natural rhythms of the day, um, circadian rhythms, lunar cycles, and actually how understanding these basic things can actually offer us um, amazing like opportunities. Could you maybe just explain a bit more about that, and maybe like a maybe a personal example how you've learned and maybe applied some of those things? 
Yeah, I mean, when you, I mean, when we get completely stuck into into Chronos or uh, as time or even the market, you know, and money as the the sort of the grid on which we live and organize our lives, you know, and we do you know shift labor where you might work at night three days a week and day two days a week, you end up disconnecting yourself from the the rhythms that the human organism has been using to modulate itself since we were, you know, one-celled animals. So whether it's, you know, you you see plants open and close in the day and the night or certain animals know that it's night and then they get up, um, there's there's lots and lots of internal rhythms of of biological clocks in you that regulate your hormones and and everything. I mean, we know women, you know, every 28 days they have a cycle. That's not coincidence, right? <laughs> it's it's 28 days. Oh, maybe it has something to do with the moon. You know, it's the way that we time ourselves, the way that so that so that things happen and when you're when you're in sync with those natural uh, uh, biological clocks, when you're aware of them, then it's no longer that, oh, I'm in a bad mood today. I don't understand why. Or, oh, I'm feeling vulnerable today. I don't understand why. It's because these are natural, very natural cycles. <clears throat> so most of us know sort of day and night. We understand that day is really good for doing stuff and night's kind of good for sleeping because it's all dark out and that melatonin and things all adjust with the with the light. And we know that if you use a computer late at night, you don't sleep as well because you've fooled your body into thinking that it's looking in sunlight or something. Um, so we know about that. But then there's also rhythms like the lunar rhythm. And if you if you look at a person over the 28-day lunar cycle, I mean, a lot of the ancient civilizations seem to understand this, that each week of the lunar cycle uh, is kind of dominated by a different neurotransmitter. So, you know, without getting into all the details now, you know, you, you have a week of acetylcholine, a week of serotonin, a week of dopamine, and then a week of norepinephrine. And if you understand which neurotransmitter is the dominant one, then you understand kind of what the week is good for. You know, if you're in a dopamine week, that's a party week. That's a ski week. That's a relax. You know, if you're in a acetylcholine week, it's good for beginning things and seeing what's going on. In norepinephrine week, you're going to be really analytical and kind of cold. It's that sort of fight or flight, uh, uh, almost winter of, uh, of, uh, of time. So, and it's, it's this sort of four-part cycle, whether it's a four-part breath or four seasons, you start to understand that there are these that there are these uh, uh, four components, these four profiles, even four kinds of people, you know, corresponding to each of those, each of those weeks, each of those, each of those um, seasons. So for me, you know, when I looked at the lunar calendar, I was like, well, why don't I try to adjust my work to be that way? It's really hard to, but you know, it's easier as a freelancer in some ways because you can say, okay, serotonin week, I'm going to do most of my work. Dopamine week, I'm going to relax. A norepinephrine week, I'm going to organize my chapters and make my battle plan. Acetylcholine week, I'm going to meet new people, do interviews, try to read and be exposed to new ideas. And you know, and my productivity went up when I decided I'd only really be writing one week of that month because that's the I, w- I was sort of rediscovering um, those cycles. But it's hard if you're living in a city and and living on the schedule of some company after when you work and have to get stuff done, you know, you're screwed up. You know, but if companies even understood these, I mean, God forbid they 
They won't. Um, if companies understood it, then they would know, oh, this is the week we advertise. This is the week we try to get people to do this. They could exploit the very same very same things. I don't know if it would be so bad, though, because at least it would be they'd be conforming to the sort of human empowering rhythms rather than just trying to squash them. So interesting. I mean, I've never, yeah, I've never heard it described like that before. And so that's just made me think when you were describing that, that just made me think, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to delve into that a bit more. I'm going to, I'm going to start learning Yeah, but you know, you look at interesting research, the, um, they're afraid to do it with humans now, but there's a lot of research, the, the, the furniture makers in Europe, you know, they cut down trees depending on which week of the lunar cycle it is, because the, the, pores of the uh the pores of the wood are open during certain weeks of the lunar cycle and much more closed during another one and uh, uh so if you cut down when they're open then they the the more of the sap comes out or they dry faster or something like that or if you want them closed then you could so even i mean people have known these things for thousands of years it's just uh you know whether whether we accept that human beings are uh part of nature that we're uh and that we can we that that the key to progress may not be trying to ignore continually ignore and override these uh kind of core commands but learning how to uh how to play with them i love that what do you say a fulfilled life means to you i don't know um i don't know fulfilled life is um a life where you've, I would, I would say, connected with the other people, you know, where you realize that you're really on team human, you know, that's what I've been calling it, and that the other ones are here to 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 play with, you know, not to uh, uh, compete against on a on a fundamental level, you know, and then that. Uh, you know, to kind of grope towards whatever that, you know, collective awareness, collaborative thing is that I would hope that we are evolving towards. And what's one thing all our listeners can do today that will have a massive positive effect on their lives? Oh, just look into someone else's eyes for real. (laughs) That's it, you know? Simple. Last but not least, how can people stay in touch, find out more about you and your work? Um, I guess uh, rushcuff.com is my website. And uh, they can buy my book. I can show this is what it's going to look like. It's going to look like that. Um, and that's, it's, that's out next month, yeah? Yeah, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. You could buy that. It's a, it's a life-affirming look at <laughs> how, how the startup industry is trying to ruin us all um but no but there's a it, it's really it's it's about the re- the retrieval of all of these great kind of medieval mechanisms for peer-to-peer exchange that have been repressed for 600 years and they're coming back now i mean spirit pig is obviously an example of uh, am, I, am i am i in the book i mean is, is that chapter what chapter five chapter seven it's all about spirit pig you, you are the book <laughs> thank you i'm so honored <laughs> spirit of the pig just <laughs> between the lines Douglas I really appreciated this thank you so much for speaking to me today it's been fun 